Hello, and welcome to It's Not Magic, a podcast from Sixth Street about business building that strips away the pretense and gets right to the useful stuff. I'm your host, David Steepleman. We use this show to talk to founders and industry leaders and get them to explain in plain English what they set out to do and specifically how they do it. Okay, the skeptic is going to think we're already stretching the scope of the podcast on just our second episode, but we're going to convert the skeptics because our guest has such an interesting and varied background and is uniquely positioned to talk about not only how to run successful organizations, but to give us inside baseball on some of the most pressing issues facing the world. And that's not an exaggeration because our guest today is Ambassador Michael McFall. You know, in the debate about NATO expansion, uh, I don't think that's what caused this war at all. It was democratic expansion and particularly Ukrainians having the audacity to think that they could practice democracy in their own country. That's what threatens him, because if they can do it and they have the same history and culture, according to Putin, as Russians, that means that Russians can do it as well. Ambassador McFall is the director of the Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies. He's senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and is a professor of political science all at Stanford University. He joined the Stanford faculty in 1995, and from 2009 to 2014, he served the United States, first as special assistant to President Obama and senior director for Russian and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council, and then from 2012 to 2014 as U.S. ambassador to the Russian Federation. You've probably seen Ambassador McFall lately as an analyst on NBC News or read his columns in the Washington Post. He's written a lot of books, including the New York Times bestseller, From Cold War to Hot Peace, An American Ambassador in Putin's Russia, and the forthcoming Autocrats versus Democrats. He's one of the few Americans and maybe one of the few people on the planet who has spent real time with and knows both Vladimir Putin and President Zelensky of Ukraine. Ambassador McFall visited with the entire Sixth Street team at our annual offsite last week in Austin, Texas, and we had an awesome, important conversation, obviously about Ukraine and what's coming for global stability, but also his career going from being a solo act as an academic to shaping global policy with big teams to running an embassy and how that was like being the mayor of a small town. I think you'll enjoy it. We'll go right into it. Ambassador Michael McFall, on behalf of the Sixth Street team, thank you so much for being here. We're very excited to have you with us. Thanks, David, for having me. Let's start with Putin. I think if you read the amateur analysis around, oh, is this NATO's fault that we push him to it? Uh, you know, is he going to use nuclear weapons? What's his end game? It kind of depends on the writer's predilection about whether he's a, you know, a, a genius, a great tactician, very rational, or if he's lost his marbles. What, could we start there? And, and maybe you can talk about your 2009 kind of meeting slash harangue that you had with him in Moscow. Well, we're starting with a hard question right away, huh, David? I thought we we're going to talk about Barack Obama's jump shot. So, so Putin and I go way back. We first met in 1991. Uh, I first wrote my article uh, warning about his autocratic ways in 2000, so 22 years ago. I saw him up close, uh, usually meeting with President Obama, sometimes Vice President Biden, uh, Secretaries of State, National Security Advisors for the five years that I, I worked in the government. I'm now on the Russia sanctions list. I was one of the first Americans to get on that list. So I haven't seen him in the last eight years. And needless to say, we're not Facebook friends. He, we're not chatting. But I, I follow him closely and, and listen to him. And I would say a couple of things. First of all, he's changed over time. Uh, the Putin that became president in 2000 
does not have the same worldview that he has today. That comes, I think, with too long in power. Uh, he doesn't listen to anybody anymore. He doesn't think about his advisors, particularly his economic advisors, by the way. They've really lost their cachet, their access to him over these years. He's become more paranoid over time. Um, I think early in his career, he thought he was in, in control of his country. And he thought that the risks and threats from the West were, were not that great. I mean, back 20 years ago, by the way, he thought about, he said openly that Russia should join NATO. But over time, as he's become more autocratic, democratic ideas, individuals and countries have become more threatening to him. And he's become more paranoid about that. And so, you know, in the debate about NATO expansion, uh, I don't think that's what caused this war at all. It was democratic expansion, and particularly Ukrainians having the audacity to think that they could practice democracy in their own country. That's what threatens him, because if they can do it and they have the same history and culture, according to Putin, as Russians, that means that Russians can do it as well. So I think that's what's going on here. He's trying to roll back what the Ukrainians call the revolution of dignity from 2014. He calls it a neo-Nazi coup uh, supported by us. And you're absolutely right. That first time that President Obama met uh, Putin, he was then Prime Minister Putin. It was the summer of 2009. I was there with him. Uh, we spent about three and a half hours with Putin. And so the president got a great chance to listen to his views of the world. And you heard this paranoia, you know, by the way, with some facts, with some truth, I think we need to be careful about not, not creating black and white things here. But he went on and on about America overthrowing regimes we didn't like. And he's talking principally about Iraq. He talked about all the mistakes that the Bush administration made in eight years. Uh, in power. By the way, never about President Bush. I, I, I know I'm speaking to people in Texas, uh, at least some of you live there, uh, really went out of his way to talk about President Bush being a good guy and a friend, but it was the deep state, right? The CIA, the Pentagon, Dick Cheney, you know, that whole crowd that, that did these bad things around the world. And at the end of his long soliloquy about Iraq, he went on for like 10, 15 minutes, I would say, just on Iraq, uh, President Obama actually agreed with him. Uh, and he said, you're right. And by the way, I don't think Putin had ever heard an American say that, uh, that you were right about Iraq, right? He'd only been talking to President Bush and his team. And Obama said to him, you know, well, we're not going to do that anymore. We're different. He said, you probably don't know, but I ran as president against the war. And it's one of the reasons I am president. And I remember watching Putin thinking, you know, looking at Obama thinking, okay, maybe there is going to be change. But 18 months later, there was the Arab Spring, 2011. And, and I want to be crystal clear, we had nothing to do with that. We didn't spark it. You know, we didn't try to overthrow our own partners in the Middle East. But from Putin's paranoid view of the world, that was a continuum from him, right? Here it is, regime change again, then exploded in his own country that same year. And then two years later, as I just said, that's when Ukraine happened. And that to me is where his paranoia is. It's about uh, democracy. To the question about nuclear weapons, uh, however, I would say a couple of things. Putin's paranoid. 
He's really upset. You can hear it in his voice when he talks. This war is. And, and I, I should tell you, you speak Russian. So you hear him in Russian, you can figure out that tone, not just through translation. Exactly. I, I do speak Russian and hear, uh, you know, in all those meetings I was in on Obama, I was always there so that I could hear the Russian and the English. He always wanted me there. You hear the anger in his voice. You hear the the unhingedness and, and just, you know, telling lies as he just did in the May 9th speech that that he just gave, uh, which is, should have been a day to celebrate the, the veterans who helped to defeat fascism uh, in World War II. And instead he turned it into this uh, explanation for his war, but he is not, I would say, suicidal. He does not, uh, you know, if you look at his meetings with his aides, you know, uh, David, he doesn't want to get COVID, right? Uh, he makes them sit, you know, 50 feet apart. That's not a guy that I think is, you know, uh, defying uh, and wants to die. I, I don't think he does. And therefore, I think the threat of a strategic nuclear war against us actually is is quite low. Compare him to Zelensky. There's a lot There's a lot in what you just said, and I want to tease out a couple of themes. Compare him to Zelensky, who you also know and you spent real time with. Well, I did. I, I hosted Zelensky at Stanford uh, last fall. Uh, I spoke to him a couple of times during the war. I was actually just speaking to his chief of staff. That was my call right before yours. Uh, Andre Yermak is his name, and he's considered the, the number two guy in Ukraine. Um, and I tell you that, David, because we were talking with Yermak about how the world needs heroes. Zelensky, I think, has risen to the occasion. He is, uh, you know, he is a badass. That guy, you know, uh, the Russians, Putin thought he would just leave, he would flee, he would go to Poland, you know, play a kind of de Gaulle role from Poland. And, and you know what he did? He got out of his bunker. It's eight stories down, the bunker he lives in. And he went out on national television, on Telegraph, the platform that he uses. And he said, we're here, we toot, is what he said. We're not going anywhere. And I think he has really inspired, without question, he's inspired Ukrainian warriors. But I think he's, a, a, you know, inspired the world to say we want to stand with him. And that drives Putin nuts because that image uh, of this hero uh, fighting for his homeland is exactly the opposite of the image that, that Putin uh, is dealing with. And, you know, I think Putin threw a lot away in this war. He, you know, I disagreed with him, obviously. I think he was taking Russia in a wrong direction for a long time. I think a democratic Russia today could have been a rich and respectable, great power in the international system. A democratic Russia today could be one of the most important countries in Europe, right? He chose a different direction. And yet, I have to admit that before this war, he had restored Russia as a, a great power, as a res, not respected too strong a word, but a power that you had to deal with. Russians were richer uh, before this war than at any time in their history. And I think tragically for Russians and for Ukrainians, of course, but even for Russians, he threw it all away by overreaching. You know, he just, he was on a roll. He'd won four wars in a row. And he thought this was going to be a cakewalk, and it's turned into a complete disaster. So the contrast between the paranoid leader of Russia, who you know literally has to lie, um, uh, he, has, he has to he has to invent reality to try to rally his uh, support at home, versus Zelensky, uh, could not be more striking to me. I've heard you draw the comparison between Putin now making this miscalculation hubris, maybe being on a roll, being isolated, and Brezhnev in the 70s going into Afghanistan. You want to explain that? 
Yeah, I, I do think it's an important analogy. So remember, Putin's been in power for 22 years. I don't know how it is in your world, but uh, you know, in the political world, people can stay on too long, right? They can lose touch with reality. He does not have good feedback loops. He doesn't listen to, he's not on Twitter, right? He, he doesn't, he doesn't, there's no independent media. He gets all of his information through secret sources. And those people providing those, those packets, they're, they're these red folders that come to him that say top secret on it. They have a vested interest in telling him that everything's great and he's great. And, you know, this is going to be a cakewalk. And it does remind me of Brezhnev because Brezhnev also was in power for a couple of decades. And initially, you know, if you remember the 70s, uh, it felt like history was on the Soviet side, right? So in the 70s, Marxist-Leninist regimes were taken over. Uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Angola, Mozambique, even Nicaragua, right? And it felt like history was on their side. And conversely, here in the United States, I, I, I was too young to remember it, but I've read about it. The late 60s, early 70s, those were not good times for America. Uh, we were divided over civil rights fights and then the war. Uh, you know, we were not doing well uh, abroad and punctuated by Richard Nixon's um, departure. It looked like we were weak and divided, not unlike it feels sometimes today how it feels today, right? And with that background, uh, Brezhnev just decided, okay, I'm on a roll. Let's just go into Afghanistan. Uh, this is going to be easy. And he got bad information about that. And I think we now write retrospectively that that war in Afghanistan was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union, where he overreached, stayed too long, big drain on the economy. Didn't happen right away, right? It, it, there was a long period between the invasion of Afghanistan and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the first leaders after Brezhnev, this is an important part of the analogy, were not reformers, right? It was Andropov and then Chernyenko. But the third one was this guy, Gorbachev, who said this was a giant mistake, Afghanistan, and, and, and eventually got them out of that war. I see a, the possibility for a similar scenario with Putin and Putin's Russia. So he'd been on a roll, too. Uh, he'd won four wars in a row, right? Chechnya in 1999. Georgia, 2008, Ukraine, 2014, Syria, 2015. Uh, and he thought this fifth war was going to be a cakewalk. And I think he overplayed his hand. Uh, by the way, you know, this kind of invasion at the scale he was doing uh, is not the same kind of opponents that he faced before, kind of similar to Brezhnev too. And I think eventually, I don't think it'll happen under Putin's rule. I think he'll, he's got a strong enough dictatorship that he'll hold on to power for as long as he's physically and mentally able. But I would be shocked if, you know, five or six years, let alone 10 or 15 years after Putin, that somebody like him would be governing the same way as he is today. So I have a, a complicated question, I think, that, that comes on, on the heels of that. And I say complicated because I hope my COVID brain is able to pull it off. You've been talking, we've been talking in analogies and frameworks in historical precedents. If you think about World War II, if that's the right analogy, you, you go down certain roads. This is Sudetenland or this is right. Poland. Or if you talk about the Finnish Winter War, it's that. If you talk about the Russo-Japanese War, it's that. You were talking about Afghanistan. My question isn't so much what's the right analogy here. My question is, 
how do you sift as among the analogies? Because you, you seem pretty good at figuring out the vectors. You referenced your 2000 Washington Post article, which I have here, actually. And it, it's, it's pretty prescient talking about the likelihood of autocracy and what Putin is really interested in. That's 22 years ago. How do you select among the reliability of analogies and frameworks? And I think it has parallels to investing and thinking about you know, things that we think about. David, that's a fantastic question. And I don't have a great answer. Uh, I would say a couple of things, though. Um, you know, I'm an academic. I, I'm a political scientist. Uh, we have our models about how to make comparisons to different wars or different revolutions. And I would say we're pretty bad at predicting the future. By the way, I worked five years in the government. I would say the same thing about the CIA. They were not very good at it either. But what I did notice in the government, you know, we have lots of methods, right? Quantitative methods, game theory experiments that we use in, in the social sciences. What I was struck by in the government is that nobody uses any of those methods. They all use historic analogy, uh, to your point. That's the currency of the realm. And you wonder why? Well, that's because what that's what they know. They weren't trained in those other methods. But a danger of that, and I saw it during the Arab Spring, up close and uh, very uh, clear during the Arab Spring in 2011, the danger of that is our top foreign policymakers only know certain historical cases. So back in, in 2011, the Arab Springs happening, first Tunisia, first e then Egypt, then Syria, then Libya. Uh, the analogy that when I sat down in the White House Situation Room and listened to Secretary Gates, Secretary Clinton analogize, they were uh, comparing this moment to the Iranian Revolution, 78, 79. And I thought that was really bizarre because I could I could think of a lot of different kinds of analogies that were closer to your point, right? And I actually told my boss about them, my the national security advisor. And later I started writing up these analogies for the president. One pagers, by the way. Academia, we get 30 pages. For the president, <laughs> you get one page. You know, summarize the Polish uh transition from communism in one page. And I did about 50 of those, by the way, with help, with experts. But, but it's a really important point you're making because it, the danger of uh, the wrong analogy can lead you down different paths. For this particular moment, I think 1939 and, and the Finnish war that you just uh, described, I think those are apt comparisons with the big difference, of course, is that Putin may have had the, the same intentions as Stalin back in 39, 40, 41, uh, I think it's pretty clear now that he does not have those same capabilities uh, with one giant scary exception, and that's nuclear weapons. Very thankfully, Hitler and Stalin did not have nuclear weapons during World War II. And that's the one wild card that is, you know, I would say sui generis uh, in the way that we analogize about the situation here with, with, of course, the one exception is that we did new, use nuclear weapons at the end of World War II. And I actually see some false analogies that some of my colleagues are using in and outside of the government with that use of nuclear weapons for the situation in Ukraine today. Can you explain that? Sorry, I want to make sure I understand that. Yeah. So there is a school of thought. There most certainly the Biden administration is rightfully worried about it. I want, I want to underscore that, right? That, that whenever you talk about nuclear weapons, people should be concerned. No matter what the probability is about their use, 
the catastrophic consequences are so great that even if you think it's a 1% probability, you want to get that down to 0 0.5, 0 0.3, 0 0.2, 0.1. That, and that's the separation, by the way, in the US government between the intelligence community, the DNI, Avril Haines, friend of mine, and, and Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, their job is to present those probabilities. The policymakers' job, beginning with the president, is to shape those probabilities. And there's a lot of debate about will Putin use nuclear weapons or not? And I'd say two things about that. With respect to strategic nuclear weapons, I think that probability is very, very low for two reasons. One, that's suicide again, right? Uh, and I don't think Putin is suicidal. There's no winners in a strategic nuclear exchange between the United States uh, and Russia. I was part of the team that negotiated the last arms control agreement, by the way. And we got rid of 30% of the nuclear weapons in the world. That was a great, that was a great day. That was a great achievement um, for President Obama. Uh, but we still left in place 1,550 on both sides. And you can blow up the world multiple times with that nuclear arsenal. So I don't think Putin's suicidal. Um, and, but I also think, to reassure our audience, um, he has deliberately had some people speak on the record in his government to say the same thing. And they have said, and this is his press spokesperson, this is the former president, President Medvedev, they have said on the record that we will only use nuclear weapons if there is an existential threat to Russia. And thankfully, there isn't. Uh, nobody's talking about attacking Russia. So that's the that's on the strategic side. The tactical side is more ambiguous. And some argue, uh, very prominent people inside the government and outside, that Putin might be tempted to use a tactical nuclear weapon inside Ukraine if he feels like he's losing the war. That may be the case. Obviously, I don't have access to secret information anymore that they're contemplating that. But I think there's a false analogy to our use of nuclear weapons in 1945 in the following sense. Remember, by 1945, the Japanese army had been fighting for many, many years, well before we started fighting them in 1941. Uh, number two, they, they by that time, by 1945, they were exhausted as a military force. And everybody knew it was just a matter of time until they lost that war. And so... President Truman made the uh, decision to accelerate the end of the war by the use of, of nuclear weapons. I think that's a false analogy uh, compared to Ukraine today. First, Ukrainians don't feel like they're losing this war, uh, not at all. Number two, they feel like the world is on their side. Japan was isolated by 1945. The entire world, except for a few countries, is on Ukraine's side. And number three, therefore, uh, you know, my my sense talking to Ukrainians on a pretty regular basis is if Putin used a nuclear, a tactical nuclear weapon against a Ukrainian city, their response would not be to just capitulate. Their response would be to escalate uh, and to take the war to Russia. And I'm just guessing here, right? I, I have no way to predict that. But I think people have um, have underestimated the potential capabilities of Ukrainians to do pretty uh, you know, nasty things to Russian cities if they were in an escalatory mode. Terrorist attacks in Moscow, for instance, you know, uh, those are things that they rightly, in my view, have not done 
because they're they're seeking to keep the war uh, relatively within the boundaries of Ukraine. Every now and then they go in and attack supply lines. But the use of a nuclear weapon, I think, would would change their calculus uh, in terms of the way they think about the war inside Russia. It's 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 hard to know from the outside, certainly someone like me, and, and even for you because you're you're not in those conversations anymore. But we started off being very ginger, the United States being very ginger about you know not seeming to uh, be too directly supplying Ukraine. All bets are off on that now, it would seem. And, and the Secretary of Defense and the, I think the President said you know the the idea is to try and neutralize the Russian army on a go forward basis, their military on a go forward basis. Does that start to creep towards that existential threat that uh, the Russians have told us, as long as you don't do that, we're not going to use a, a strategic nuclear weapon? It does. It creeps is the right word. And I think we need to be very careful about defining what our objectives are in supplying the Ukrainians with weapons and sanctions and fortifying NATO. Uh, in my view, uh, we were way too slow in the beginning. Uh, I said that a hundred times and, and uh, you know, including to the president of the United States when I, I had the chance to brief him about it. My view, David, uh, we were years too slow. We should have been providing these arms back in 2014, 2015. I'm, I'm, I'm criticizing the government I served in uh, as a way to deter where we're at today. But that, you know, that, that was then, this is now. Um, and so I, I applaud the Biden administration for now increasing both the speed, the quantity, and the, and the, and the quality of weapons uh, to the Ukrainians. I think they, should, they could go further, by the way, but I applaud that. I do not think it should be our uh, strategic objective to you know, weaken Russia, uh, their military, or their economy. I think that is the wrong objective right now. I think the objective should be do what we can to end this war, and in my view, the only way you're going to end this war is if Putin believes that he no longer can advance his military objectives. So that means you give the Ukrainians the, the weapons to fight to stop Putin. I do not think at this time we should extend our objectives to you know, fundamentally weaken the Russian army or fundamentally destroy the Russian economy. I, th I think we should uh, limit our objectives to ending the war. Help, help me understand the distinction between what you just said, and you've been very uh, vocal about sanctions. You you chair an international working group on sanctions. I think you you, you put a, a piece in the Post Washington Post maybe earlier this week on, you know, here's how we take sanctions to the next level. So what's the goal there? Well, with sanctions, the goal is also to end the war, uh, and that but that's controversial. I want to be clear. My my views on that are not shared by everybody in the Ukrainian government, and most certainly not throughout um, even here in the United States. Um, I always, you know, kind of philosophically believe sanctions should be to achieve a purpose. Uh, I think we we get into a slippery slope. I mean, Cuba is a good example where we we kind of lose the thread on what the objective was, and they just they just stay in place forever. Um, uh, I, I worked on the sanctions regime vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran, and it was a very successful regime in my view. It put enough pressure on the Iranians to sign. The Iran nuclear deal. And I think that's a good example of how to use sanctions. That's my personal view. Um, but um, uh, I would say two things. My view is also if you share that view, then you got to be all in. Uh, this incrementalism does not achieve that objective. Uh, it has to be shock and awe with sanctions. And I think dribbling them out undermines uh, that objective. It doesn't help that objective. 
And then there's one caveat in my views that I, I would say need to be added to it, which is um, when the war ends, um, there's going to be a massive rebuilding. Economists smarter than I measure it uh, to be about $1 trillion uh, to rebuild Ukraine. Well, the Russians have to help pay for that. And that's a place where some of the sanctions that have been put in place, particularly the the freezing of the central bank sank uh, dollar deposits that we frozen, we froze, depending on you count it, it's three or $400 billion. I think there's an argument to be made that those are assets because those are from the Russian government that could be used uh, for the reconstruction of Ukraine. Could you talk about Twitter? Because you're on Twitter. You're pretty good at Twitter as far as I can tell. I don't know, but you seem pretty good at Twitter. So on the one hand, there's a lot of information out there and people are able to talk very directly and you know there's a lot of noise but there's a lot of ways to talk to people on the other hand it's hard to understand what russian public opinion is information is being controlled very tightly i've heard you say gee compared to the cold war we have fewer bilateral kind of connections with people you need to be talking to a theme of your career is you got to talk to each other how do i think about this like how, yeah. how are we able to you know first of all i want to tell everybody uh, and i write about it in my book I did not choose to be on Twitter. Tell me who told you to do it. So my boss at the time, remember, I'd worked at the White House for three years, uh, worked on the campaign even before then. uh, And then President Obama nominated me to become ambassador. And that meant that I was switching over to uh, the State Department, who at the time, the Secretary of State was Hillary Clinton. And, And you just need to remember, by the time I became ambassador, of course, we were all on the same team. But we weren't all on the same team in 2008, right? Um, and so for, for me to like migrate over, remember the president's always the, the, the boss for everybody, but, but I was acquiring a new boss, Secretary Clinton. Um, and in my last briefing with her before I went out to Moscow, uh, I went over to see her and she gave me some marching orders. And so she, you know she's my new boss. I, I was writing notes, I was taking notes. And uh, she had three three things she wanted me to do. And one of them, she said, Mike, we got to talk to the Russian people. uh, And it's the 21st century. And so you need to get on social media. And she mentioned Twitter in particular as a as a as a tool to communicate directly to people. And I'm from Montana, but lived the last 30 years of my life here in California and uh, been around these companies, but I'd never seen Twitter, David, until she told me that. I literally had never seen the platform. I got a briefing from her uh, social media advisor, and then I got on Twitter. Um, And it was an incredibly useful tool for us to communicate directly to the Russian people so that we didn't have to wait for an invitation from Russian media, most of which was controlled by the government. And two, it's a two-way street, right? So it's not just broadcasting. And, you know, imagine how shocked, you know, high school kids in Vladivostok were when they didn't believe it was me, first of all. And when I would then tweet back and I could prove it was me by all the mistakes I made trying to tweet in Russian, um, it, you know, it was a great tool uh, to communicate. And by the way, it was a great tool to communicate about things, not just about policy, because one of the things that Clinton's uh, advisor told me, he said, Mike, if you just tweet out State Department press releases, you know, you're going to have 50 followers. Uh, You got to embrace this platform as if you're a public figure. And he said, that's going to be uncomfortable for you because I've, I've been on TV for a long time. I've talked, but I've always talked as a analyst. Right. And he was saying, no, now you are a 
You're going to have to talk as an ambassador. You're going to have to write about your kids a little bit. You're going to have to write about, you know, Stanford and, and Montana. You know, he was like looking for hooks that would be popular in Russia. And by the way, he was absolutely right about that stuff. Uh, you got you to gotta mix in the spinach with the fun stuff, right? And so I began tweeting about, I coached my son's third grade basketball team when I was in Moscow, right? And that was shocking for Russians to think that an ambassador would A, do that, but yet tweet about it. Remember, we don't know anything about Putin's kids, right? Like he, it's total mysterious. And that generated, I became at one point, the, you know, one of the top 10 bloggers in all of Russia when I was ambassador. And so I think it's a very useful tool to communicate. And to the second point of your part of your question, I just don't think we're doing enough. I think we've we kind of got out of the habits of communicating abroad. Um, yes, it's more difficult in places like China and Russia, but I think we we got to get in this game in a much more proactive way as a government. And then individuals like me do the same. Right before this call, David, I was just on a call on YouTube. So YouTube hasn't been banned yet in Russia with Russian journalists and their you know, kind of opposition Russian journalists and their followings are growing. I mean, they, they measure their audiences in the tens of millions and that is approaching what Putin has on his old fashioned television station. So I just think there's a lot more work that can be done in this world, uh, in this, this space. It's hard because uh, the autocrats have a lot of tools, but, but I think there's a giant demand for good content. And I think we got to think more creatively about how to do that. Is that increase in the opposition channels? Is that a last 75 days phenomenon or is that? Yes. Well, two things happened. One, the war happened and people wanted to learn more about the war. So if you're, if you're living in Putin's bubble, you know, um, and, and we know the demographics, you know, we've, we've done enough studying about who they are, but Putin's bubble is uh, uh, to oversimplify a bit, but the older you are, uh, the less educated you are, the more rural place you live, and the less wealthy you are, the more likely you are to live in that information bubble that Putin creates. But conversely, the younger you are, the more urban you are, the more educated you are, the wealthier you are, you're, you're not likely to listen to him. You know, that's most of Moscow. That's most of St. Petersburg. Uh, th there's tens of millions of people that don't tune in to Putin's propaganda stations. And there, I think there's, there's work to be done to be interacting with those people. So the, the, the things that we hear in the U.S. press or the, the Western press, I guess, about majorities are fine with this because they're getting bad information or because as long as they're you know, materialized or not effective, they're fine. I'm talking about the Russian population. You, you don't believe that. I don't. And, and let me explain why. Uh, so I used to do public opinion work in Russia uh, uh, earlier in my academic career. First, I don't believe I, I know all the opinion poll companies really well. I know I've known them for 30 years and I don't believe their data for this really simple reason. If you're sitting out there in Vladivostok and some stranger from Moscow calls you, David, and says, hey, David, uh, uh, my name's Misha. Uh, I work for a polling firm here in Moscow. Uh, I want you to tell me what you think, David, about Putin. Um, and, and if you're, if people need to understand this, when somebody calls from Moscow 
Uh, and this has been true for decades. That's Vlas. That's the power. That's that's the Kremlin calling, right? The idea that you're separate from them uh, does not exist in the minds of most Russians. And so there's only one rational answer to that, David. Uh, yeah, you support Vladimir Putin. Uh, why would you say anything else? There's no rational reason for you to say anything else. So that's fact number one. Fact number two, um, sanctions are having an effect not just on the oligarchs, but on the middle classes. I just saw the data for uh, auto sales year to year uh, in April. Uh, they're down 70%. That's affecting millions of Russians. Uh, and there's lots of data like that coming out. So I, I don't believe those opinion polls. I think there's a lot of you know what we call preference falsification uh, going on inside Russia because that's the rational thing to do. I want to spend the last couple minutes um, but I'm not calling that yet on uh, on where this is going. But before we do that, I, you, you talked about, you know, working on teams and you're on the same team. This is in the government. You came from academics and this is a tension in your career or a, or a balance in your career between being an academic and an actor in the arena. And you wanted to be both. And I think you felt both reinforced the other, the one reinforced the other. But when you got to government, you went from, I think, being a someone who's in their office i imagine an academic having a very wonderful you know easy lifestyle <laughs> reading books and, and writing things i'm obviously being facetious but where it's a solo enterprise how did you adjust how did you bring teams together we're, we talk a lot about that at our events including this offsite about how to work well together how did you do that was that important uh it was extremely important both when i worked at the white house and then especially when i you know i led a an embassy when when he added all together was seventeen hundred people uh, throughout the the country in our uh, consulates. So it was a it was a very big management job and a leadership job in a in a social sense. David, that is, uh, as one of my previous ambassadors explained to me, you're not just the ambassador; you're the mayor of a little town, because on the compound, the main compound uh, in the Moscow embassy. Uh, you know, we did. We had a bowling alley. We had, you know, uh, plumbers. We had a bar. We had uh, a gym, you know, all kinds of people working there. Uh, and we had people living on the campus, you know, 500 people or so living there. And it was a town. And by the way, we had conflicts. We had fights over, you know, whether we're going to have hot food for lunch or cold food, right? The Americans all wanted sandwiches and the Russians all wanted borscht, right? And I would say just two lessons. I mean, one, I, I love being on the team. You're absolutely right in the, the kind of work that I do. Uh, in the, uh, I write books by myself and I sit in front of a computer, you know, like I'm doing now trying to write. By the way, that is a lot harder than being ambassador. Uh, I, uh, writing is really, maybe just for me, but it is a really hard, but it's a solo enterprise, right? I love being on the team. I love being part of a, a larger enterprise with no footnotes uh, that, that we're all together. Um, I think for me as an outsider, remember, I was a political appointee coming into Moscow. And so there's there's rightfully uh, from the State Department. And remember, an embassy in Moscow had two dozen different pieces of the U.S. government there. It wasn't just the State Department, right? It's it's the Pentagon. It's the Department of Commerce. It's NASA. You might not be surprised that we might have members of the intelligence community there, too. So it was a big enterprise with people with lots of different equities. And so for me, um, it was always, um, you know, just probably pretty obvious things. But because I came from academia, um, I was not afraid of decentralization. 
I think some uh, mistake, and I don't want to I don't want to analogize to things I don't know. Right, uh, I'm being very careful here, but I do think a mistake that we make in the government most certainly is a mistake Putin's making that he's not have that feedback loop. We call it principal agent problems in academia, but embassies have it too. It's the State Department's a very hierarchical place, and you know as the ambassador. Everybody stops when you walk by. Everybody, like I couldn't get used to this. Like people would stop and like open the door for me, for God's sake. So I'm like, you don't have to do that, man. I, I can, you know, I can open my own door. But it is that is the culture. I tried to break that down. I tried to learn from the people that know the best, and and sometimes those are your first tour officers, and, and to try to get that feedback loop broken down, uh, so that we could get not have to go through eight lines of communication to get to me. I found that to be very useful. And then, then two, you know, when we were assaulted, we, I, I was there at a pretty difficult time where they were doing the nasty things. And I write about it in my book to me and my family, but they were also doing those tough things to members of my community, slicing their tires, breaking into their apartments, you know, trying to scare us. And I think, you know, signaling we're all in this together and that we are proudly here to represent not just Barack Obama, but the American people in the United States of America, that had a, an effect that, that, you know, rallied literally the soldiers, because I had some soldiers that worked for me, but everybody else as well. Thank you for that. That's, it's, it's inspiring. Let me ask you this, the cohesion of the, the West, the democracies, whatever, whatever the right word is right now seems pretty high seems to be a miscalculation of putin we got a lot of instability coming right and, you know yes. it's, it's planting season in ukraine in, in russia we're not going to see those kinds of shipments of, of grain or wheat places like egypt to import i think 70 percent of their wheat from that region like, yes we're, we're going to start to see some real pain hunger like real things happening throughout the world in various regions should we assume that the allies are somehow planning for that? Are we, are, we, are we against the clock to get things done before things start to you know, devolve? You know, I'm really worried about that, uh, the, your question, because uh, I, I agree. It's been incredible, I would say, the unity in the, in the democratic world, free world, liberal world. But I worry about two things. One, I think uh, many Americans have not noticed how many other countries are sitting on the sidelines, right? Yeah. Africa, Middle East, India, tragically, really on the sidelines. China, I get. The rest of them, I, I think we need to remember that a lot of the rest of the world sitting on the sidelines. And two, as things get uh, harder and, and, and the war drifts out of the news, uh, I worry about solidarity over the long haul. The director of national intelligence, uh, Avril Haines is her name. Um, I used to work with her at the White House. She just gave a briefing yesterday to members of the Senate Select Intelligence Committee, and she, their assessment is that Putin is not, you know, is not suing for peace anytime soon. He plans to be this, be in it for the long haul. I think that's going to create a challenge about the things you just described, keeping people together, because every country in the democratic world has their politics, uh, including our own country. And as we get closer to elections, uh, there's going to be more and more argument about why are we doing so much for the Ukrainians uh, when we're not doing enough uh, to help our own people. A big giant package of aid was just uh, got out of Congress today. 
you're going to have people talk about why is that not going to American people at the same time that people are blaming inflation uh, on uh, being involved in this war. Now it's Putin's war. I think I think it's important for the president of our country and for leaders around the rest of the free world to explain that they're the ones driving up prices, including food prices, by the way. It's just horrible that that's happening. I, I wish that story would get more attention. Starvation is going to happen because Putin is starving Egyptians. But electoral politics are going to make it harder to sustain this effort uh, over the months and tr tragically, dare I say, years. Let me, let me finish with this. There's so much, there's a million things to talk about. There's China, there's the UN, there's will, will, they, will, will Putin do sham referenda in the Donbass and what does that look like? Maybe help us help ourselves. Who are you reading? Who are you paying attention to? Who do you think is reliable and is thoughtful besides yourself? <laughs> That's a hard question. Well, follow Zelensky. Uh, he's the first guy. I find his messaging. I, I talked to him about it. You, you remember, he was an accidental president. There's democratic politics in Ukraine. You know, he was fighting with uh, different parties before this war, but I think he's really risen to the occasion. And I find his messaging very clear. And he, it's just, you know, it's about life or death for his country, but it's about life or death for the rest of us. I think he rightly says that if they win in Ukraine, that helps our allies in Europe and makes nervous our enemies around the world. But the opposite is true too. If he, if he loses, that makes our allies in Europe very nervous and helps our, our enemies around the world. And I think that clarity is very important. Um, other people that I read closely, I find Timothy Gartnash to be somebody worth reading. And I find Anne Applebaum as well. She writes for The Atlantic. I, I find Anne to be very smart. And I'm not supposed to advertise other professors because Stanford is where all the great professors are. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, let me advertise one other Stanford professor because he has a new book coming out. Uh, I think it just came out today, Yesterday. in fact. Yes, uh, uh, Frank Fukuyama. Uh, don't believe all the, the twisted stuff that you've read about Frank in the end of history. I find his writing about the world incredibly powerful and his new book about liberalism is a real message to both Republicans and Democrats in America and I think to the world. I highly recommend um, uh, Frank about everything, but he writes about Ukraine as well. And the one guy I was going to mention, um, he's a Professor Tim Snyder at uh, Yale. Yale's a very fine institution. I think Stanford's a better one. <laughs> but on this issue, I think Tim Snyder, I try to read closely everything that he writes. That's awesome. I would follow Ambassador McFall on Twitter, and I will leave it at saying, thank you, it sounds corny, for your service, because you know, thank God you were there and for your continued observations. And thank you so much for spending time with us. We really appreciate it. And uh, you know, good luck. Thanks. David, this is a great conversation. Uh, you and I should go on the road. These were fantastic questions. I, 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 I get a chance to talk a lot. Uh, not all questions are, are as interesting as this one was today. So I really thank you for that. You're, you're nice to say that. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Ambassador Michael McFall joined the 6th Street Annual Offsite in Austin, Texas on May 11th, 2022. It was a real honor and pleasure to spend time with him. I don't think it's a stretch at all to take away some business building lessons from the conversation. In particular, the metaphors or analogies or frameworks, they're useful tools for trying to see where the puck is going, 
but you can't let them supersede data and common sense. And in everything, diplomacy, business, life, people have to talk to each other to have the trust to be able to get things done. You should follow Ambassador McFall on Twitter if you do that kind of thing. He's at McFall, M-C-F-A-U-L, for good info and analysis on what's happening in Ukraine and beyond. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Sixth Street, and Sixth Street is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of or listening to this podcast is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Sixth Street. Please see additional disclosures on our website for more details. You've been listening to It's Not Magic, a Sixth Street podcast. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at sixthstreet.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's show, please share it and follow at Sixth Street News for more on the show and our firm. Thanks to Sixth Street's production team, Patrick Clifford and Kate Hannock, for putting this together with sound engineering by Stephen Cologne and great assistance from Josh Benson at Old Town Media. Our theme song is It's Not Magic, an original creation by Patrick Dyer-Wolf. Once again, I'm David Steepleman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.